0: This is The Gathering Ottawa's message podcast, and we've got another great message for you. For information about us, check out thegatheringottawa.com. To get connected, email info at thegatheringottawa.com. And just know that at The Gathering, we exist to connect people to the love of Jesus. So let's get right to it. After a few months off, we are jumping back in to the book of Acts, this New Testament book that tells the story of the first church, the early church. If you're newer here, or if it's just been so long that you forgot, we've actually been in this journey through this book for quite some time, for a couple years, actually, in the fall of 2021. We started, uh, as we regathered post-COVID, we started working through this book together and felt that it was really important to do so because at that point in time, as we were regathering after COVID, there was a lot of confusion around what the church is and what the church is supposed to be and do in the world, and lots of people have different opinions about it, and what's the role of gathering on Sundays, and what should the church do during the week? What's the point of church? And so we felt, hey, what better place to go to look for an answer to that question than to the source, right, to the story of the early church to see how they lived life together as the people of God and as a church family. And so this morning we're going to be looking at Acts 24 in a message that I'm calling The Frightening Message of Jesus. The Frightening Message of Jesus. And that's not because Halloween's only in like 10 days or whatever it is, nine days. I think that that title will make more sense to you as we work our way through this text. But it's important to know before we get into this passage here this morning that we're kind of jumping in to a story midstream. We're after the apostle Paul had been arrested in Jerusalem, back in Acts 21, after being falsely accused of desecrating the temple and of teaching others to break the Jewish law and even encouraging people to rebel against the state, against Rome. Paul then, in Acts 22 and 23, offers his defense. First in Acts 22, to the crowds that were gathered, followed by the Sanhedrin, the high council in Acts 23, the people who ruled over the Jewish people, and now, here in Acts 24, before the Roman governor, Felix. This, by the way, after Paul escaped with the help of some Roman officials and soldiers, to a neighboring town, neighboring city, called Caesarea, a city some 80 to 90 kilometers away from Jerusalem, as Rome had become very invested in this particular case, as it relates to the Apostle Paul. Likely due to Paul's Roman citizenship, but also because they wanted to keep things from getting out of hand. They didn't want riots to break out, uh, violent mobs to break out, that kind of thing. They wanted to keep the peace. And so they moved Paul away from Jerusalem to this other city to keep the peace. Okay, so here now in Acts 24, our passage for today, Paul is now standing trial and presenting his defense before the Roman governor. In what, for us, would be the equivalent of standing before the Supreme Court of Canada, the highest court in the land. And he's not the only one in the room, either, as Ananias, the Jewish high priest, and a number of other Jewish elders, along with their lawyer, a a prosecutor named uh, Tertullus, as we'll see in a moment. They're there as well. They've traveled from Jerusalem to Caesarea to bring their case against the Apostle Paul in hopes, in all likelihood, that Rome would have Paul executed. Okay, making this text, this story, very much so like a ancient Roman courtroom drama, right? Like, I don't know how many of you are Law & Order fans. Any Law & Order fans? A few of us, yes. Colin the lawyer in the pack is a big fan. Like, if Law & Order were to start a show called Ancient Rome Edition, right, this would be an episode. This would make an excellent episode of Law & Order Ancient Rome Edition as Paul and the elders, along with this prosecutor... Uh, duke it out before the Roman Governor Felix. but before we get to our text I want to want to encourage you to try to put yourself in paul 's shoes here as best as you can I, I know it's hard we live in a different world, different context it's hard to place ourselves in this story but in order to help us think through this a little bit I, I imagine imagine that today you're in some trial in some middle Eastern country perhaps let's say Saudi Arabia, okay, a country where, as I understand it, it's illegal to publicly practice the Christian faith or any faith that is not Islam, for that matter. There's a version of Sharia law, of course, that is being followed there in Saudi Arabia. And imagine you're standing on trial before the Supreme Court of that country for basically preaching against Islam and having preached Jesus instead and now you're having to defend yourself to the Supreme Court knowing that this court quite literally holds your life in their hands how would you feel in that moment what would you what would you say what would you do would you maybe lie a little bit minimize what it is that you did to soften the consequence would you twist the truth a little bit Would you comply with their demands? Or would you see it, perhaps, as an opportunity to preach Jesus instead? What would you do in that spot? Well, it's not the same thing, but if you can at all feel the anxiety and the pressure and the fear of a moment like that, then you can probably Imagine what it must have been like for Paul, what it it is that he maybe felt as he stood on trial before the Roman governor Felix, here in Acts 24. Felix, this governor, by the way, being a very powerful and corrupt leader in Rome. He was the procurator at the time, representing the emperor as judge of the highest court in the land, and he was known to be a pretty bad dude with uh, a Roman historian, Pacticus, uh, describing him as, a, as a cruel, licentious, and base, as in morally corrupt and wicked. As for example, he, it was just known, it was, it was common practice for him to take bribes and to look the other way, to let people get away with their crimes so long as he got his cut, while ruthlessly punishing those who could not pay him off. That's who Paul's standing before here in Acts this governor, the governor, Felix, he's not a good dude. So then, with all that context in mind, let's dive into this episode of Law and Order Together, shall we? We're in Acts uh, 24, verses 5 and 6. You see Tertullus, the Sanhedrin's lawyer, the prosecutor, bringing their charges against Paul before the governor. They're opening for the pr- uh, prosecution, if you will. Here's what he said. Here's a summary of their charges against Paul, starting in verse 5. So we have found this man to be a troublemaker, Paul, a troublemaker, who is constantly stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the cult known as the Nazarenes. Furthermore, he was trying to, des- to desecrate the temple when we arrested him. You can find out the truth of our accusations by examining him yourself. Now, in summary, there's three charges here that Tertullus made against Paul. Number one, he calls Paul a troublemaker, accusing him falsely of stirring up riots against, or amongst, rather, the Jewish people all over the world. Or in other words, what he's accusing him of here is insurrection, or even treason and sedition, which was a big no-no in Rome. It's a big accusation. Number two, second accusation is this. He calls Paul the ringleader of a cult called the Nazarenes, which of course was true to some extent. Paul was a Christian leader, but after having already accused Paul of insurrection, Tertullus is now also suggesting that this entire group that Paul leads, known as the church or the Nazarenes, the Christians, that they were also then a threat of violence against Rome as well, and that Paul was leading the charge here, he was leading these people towards violently overthrowing the state, which of course, again, was completely false. Finally, third accusation that was made against Paul was this, it was that Paul had been trying to desecrate the temple when they had originally arrested him, which was a reference to the belief that Paul had brought in a Gentile, a non-Jewish person into the temple in Acts 21, which he had not done. But this was actually a very dangerous accusation for Titulus to bring against Paul as well as the Romans had given the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders, wide powers in dealing with offenses against their temples. They had a lot of freedom to navigate issues related to their temple without having to go through Rome. And so there was potentially very little that Rome could do here to protect Paul against this charge if proven true. It's where the three main accusations. But in short, all you need to know is this. Paul was in a lot of trouble (laughs) here. There were some serious accusations being brought against Paul as he stood before the Supreme Court of Rome. So what then did Paul say in response? What was his defense? Well, Noah read that for us, so we won't read it all again. But in verses 10 through 21... We see Paul's words to the Roman um, governor Felix in response. We see his defense. I'll sum it up for us here. In verse 12, Paul first says this. He he debunks the first accusation, saying, My accusers never found me arguing with anyone in the temple, nor stirring up a riot in any synagogue or on the streets of the city. Like, I've never started a riot of any kind, Paul is saying. That first accusation is just not true. As for the second accusation, verse 14, I admit, Paul says, that I follow the way, which as a side note, I just love that term, the way. Isn't that cool? That's how Christians referred to themselves as followers of the way, not necessarily as Christians, but as followers of the way. love that. I admit, Paul says, that I follow the way, which they call a cult. But I worship the God of our ancestors and I firmly believe the Jewish law and everything written in the prophets. I have the same hope in God that these men have. Like my, my faith comes from the same place as theirs. I have the same, the same hope in God that these men have that he will both, um, that he will raise both the righteous and the unrighteous. Like in other words, this is no violent cult, Paul is saying. we're not looking to overthrow the government. Like, we're not this seditious group of evil people. We teach and read from the same scriptures that my accusers do. Then, as far as the third accusation goes about desecrating the temple, verse 18, Paul says this, My accusers saw me in the temple as I was completing a purification ceremony. There was no crowd around me and no rioting, but some Jews from the province of Asia were there, and they ought to be here to bring charges if they have anything against me. Or in other words, Paul's saying, like, if, if you have any witnesses, then why aren't they here? It's because of this whole desecrating the temple accusation is completely false. It never happened. That was Paul's defense in a nutshell. A defense that addressed the specific accusations that were made against them, but that ultimately pointed to the real reason that he was on trial that day. And that real reason was this. It was because of his Christian faith. That's why Paul was on trial here. It was because of his faith. Paul was not on trial because of any concerns around insurrection or treason or around the temple or anything else. This was 100% about his accuser's disdain for the Christian faith. And as part of that, his belief in the resurrection of Jesus, which Paul pointed to in verse 15 and 21. They hated that about him, and they wanted him to be tried. They wanted him imprisoned because they saw him as a threat to their religion. Paul knew that's what was going on here. Tertullus and the members of the Sanhedrin knew it, and the governor knew it too. Which is why we read this in verse 23. Felix, the governor, who was quite familiar with the way adjourned the hearing, ordering in verse 23 that Paul be kept in custody while he gathered more information and made his decision. But it's an interesting line, isn't it? Who, who was quite familiar with the way Felix was. Like, again, Felix knew exactly what was going on here already. Like, he'd done his research, he knew about the way, he, he knew that Paul was not some violent cult leader in danger of sedition, and he knew about the tensions that existed between the Sanhedrin and the church, and he knew that these Jewish leaders had it out for Paul. He just didn't want to make a decision in this case. He didn't want to have his his hand involved. He didn't want to be involved in what would happen to Paul. And the reason for that is because if he were to make a decision, the decision would probably be, to acquit him, right, which he knew would lead to an uproar, that back in Jerusalem, people would be quite upset about this. He had no reason here to um, order Paul's execution or imprisonment, especially since Paul Paul was a Roman citizen. But he didn't want to do anything that would lead to an outbreak of violence, and so he just put the whole thing off, placing Paul under a rather liberal sort of detainment known as military custody, which gave Paul a lot of freedom, including visitation from family and friends, like house arrest. The story in this chapter it ends now with these words in verses 24 through to 27. I'll say this a few days later, after Felix had adjourned the hearing, Felix came back with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and who, interestingly, was King Agrippa's daughter. Actually, we read about this particular King Agrippa in Acts 12. There were a few different King Agrippas throughout the story of the New Testament, but this particular king is that we read about him in Acts 12. He's the king who had been persecuting the church and had placed Peter under arrest. If you remember that story, Peter being miraculously freed by an angel from prison when he was going to be on trial the next day, likely executed. And then right after that, we read about how this king, King Agrippa, was struck down by an angel of the Lord, and as a result was eventually consumed with worms and died, which is an interesting way to die. But anyway, this is Drisula's dad, King Agrippa, the Jewish king who was killed by an angel. <laughs> How many of you watched the show Touched by an Angel, like in the 90s? Yeah, I did too, but I think a show called Killed by an Angel would be even better, right? More inter- no, okay, I don't know, maybe I'm just twisted, but... All of this means that Drusilla, who was Jewish, she probably had some familiarity with the story of Jesus and the story of the church. It may have even been the source of her husband's knowledge of the way, right? We don't know for sure, but in all likelihood, she was the one who kind of informed Felix about Christianity. We don't know. What we do know, though, from reading extra-biblical sources, namely Jewish historian Josephus, is that Felix and Drusilla's marriage was quite the topic of gossip throughout Palestine during this day. Like, no doubt, ancient, <laughs> ancient TMZ would have been all over this hot gossip, if you know what I'm talking about. See, what happened, in short, according to Josephus, was that Felix, who was apparently quite struck by Drusilla's beauty, he promised Drusilla, who was already married to a king, of a small state in Syria, he promised her that if she left her husband and married him instead, that he would make her happy, which no doubt was a play on words, as Felix means happy in Latin. And so that's what happened. She left her husband and married Felix, instead, becoming Felix's third wife now. Felix had quite the history with marriages. This was the scandal. In the celebrity gossip of the day, as their relationship basically started as an affair. And everybody in all of Rome, Jerusalem, throughout Palestine, they they knew about it. Including the Apostle Paul himself. There's no way he couldn't have known about it. This is like Charles and Camilla type gossip. They knew about it. Helpful context, I think, to keep in mind as we continue reading on through this story. Verse 24 is still sending for Paul, Drusilla, and Felix, they listened as he told them about faith in Christ Jesus. Where perhaps because of Drusilla's Jewish background and because of Felix's familiarity with the way, they wanted to know more, right? They they wanted to have some better understanding of who Jesus was and what it was that Paul believed about him. So he told them about his faith in Jesus Christ. He, He didn't hold back. Risky thing for him to do, right? Imagine again, you're on trial in Saudi Arabia, and you're called in and asked about your faith, and you tell them point-blank about it, the risky thing to do. Paul's putting himself in great risk in doing so, but he did not hold back. Verse 25 now, and this is very interesting. Look at what he said. As he reasoned with them about righteousness and self-control and the coming day of judgment. Press pause there. Interesting topics. Right? for Paul to address, considering Felix and Drusilla's story. Isn't it? Like, basically, Paul is saying, hey guys, I know a little bit about you, so let's talk about morality. <laughs> basically. And let's talk about how Christ makes us righteous despite our unrighteousness. And let's talk about your lack of self-control and our need to be led by the Holy Spirit instead of our fleshly impulses. And let's talk about the coming day of judgment As well, when Christ returns and we stand before God and have to give an account for all of our actions. Let's talk about righteousness, self-control, and the coming day of judgment. Like, Paul went right for the jugular here. Very risky thing for him to do. They could have, at a moment, had ordered his execution, but he he didn't hold back, right? He went for it, calling them to repentance and ultimately calling them to surrender their lives to Jesus and to his righteousness instead of their own, which clearly was lacking anyway. So then how did Felix respond to this challenge? Well, Luke tells us. He says, Felix became frightened. Felix became frightened, or alarmed, or startled, or distressed, or even disturbed, right? He was frightened. And he said, go away for now. Shut it down. When it is more convenient, when I feel like it, I'll call for you again. Circle back to this in a moment. It's an important verse. But first, verse 26 and 27. He also hoped that Paul would bribe him, because this was his practice. Right? He was so corrupt. So he sent for him quite often, and he talked to him. This is how he rolled. Right? If you want to get out of here, just flip me a little bit of money. Right? Verse 27. After two years went by in this way, and Paul didn't give in, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, the incoming procurator, and because Felix wanted to gain favor with the Jewish people, he left Paul in prison. And then the credits rolled on this episode of Law and Order, Ancient Rome Edition, with Paul remaining in prison, in military custody, house arrest of sorts for at least two years, as family and friends could visit him, In fact, it's believed that Luke, who's the author of Acts, probably visited him during this time while he's under house arrest. And that's where he got this account of this story, was while Paul was still in prison. But I want to circle back to verse 25 here, where we read how in response to Paul's presentation of the gospel and challenge to Felix and Drusilla to surrender to the Lord Jesus, that Felix became frightened sending Paul away and calling him back when it was more convenient for him, when he felt like actually engaging in those topics with him. Reality, I think, is that this is how many of us, many people in our world today, respond to the gospel here and now, isn't it? Expressing their rejection of the gospel through delay. Just brushing it off, ignoring it, thinking if I don't respond, eventually it'll just go away. Or maybe eventually I'll change and it will become easier. Or at the very least, expressing their hesitancy or fear of what it will mean for them to respond to the gospel through delay. See this all the time in our world. This is actually my story a little bit, as I was quite hesitant as a young man, as a teenager, to respond to the good news of Jesus and delayed making a decision for quite some time as I looked for an excuse, a way out, a way to wiggle out from it. As a young man, 15 years old, I have shared this before with many of you, but some of you may not know this. As a teenager, I uh, was involved in drugs, alcohol, you name it, I, I was in it. I was uh struggling with a lot of different things, issues of rejection as a, uh, I was adopted and really struggled with my identity, knowing who I was, and looking for a place to fit in, and ended up going to all sorts of destructive behaviors to find my way as a teenager. And I remember um, 16 years old, sitting in my bedroom, and my younger brother, who's about eight years younger than I am, so he's like eight years old, he comes into my bedroom, he looks me in the eyes, he says, Jeff do you smoke cigarettes? Which is like the least of my problems, right? Smoking cigarettes, that was the least damaging thing I was involved in, perhaps, but he asked me, because in his mind, eight years old, that's like the worst thing you could ever do, right? To smoke cigarettes. Do you smoke cigarettes? Does my big brother smoke? I remember in that moment thinking, oh my goodness, I am such a bad big brother. such a terrible influence on Philip my little brother. And so I think I lied to him. I was like, oh no, I don't smoke. Just felt so convicted, so terrible, so guilty. And so that night, feeling really bad about it, I remember praying. I didn't pray much in this season of my life. I'd grown up in the church, but didn't really want anything to do with it. I remember praying that night that God would give me the strength to quit smoking. I'd been smoking at that point for like four years at that point, at age 16, if you can believe it, up to a pack a day, and uh, felt like I tried before couldn't quit already at age 16. So I prayed, God, could you help me quit? I just feel like such a failure as a big brother, and I'd love to be a better example to my brother. And if you, if you help me quit smoking, I, I said this, this is a dangerous thing to pray, but I said, if you help me quit smoking, I promise I'll follow you for the rest of my life. I was like, he's not going to do it anyway. So, like, it's all good. Like, he's, it's all, if I quit, it's because I'm going to quit, not because God's going to help me, right? Next day, woke up, didn't have a cigarette, didn't have any nicotine issues, wasn't shaking, wasn't having any cravings. I never smoked a cigarette again my whole life from that moment on. Cravings gone. And for, like, two or three months, I ignored God. After that, I'm like, I, okay, I, I know you did it. I, I don't want to acknowledge that you did it because it means I'm going to have to surrender my life to you, and I don't really want to do that. I, I delayed my response to the good news of Jesus and just ignored God, hoping, I guess, that I don't know what, that I would just, God would leave me alone, I guess. And then the night before that second semester of grade 11, finally... After months of resisting and delaying, I finally said, Okay, fine. You can have your way. I surrender my life to you. And showed up at school the next day, a changed person, and uh, began my journey of discipleship uh, with Jesus. But for a long stretch there, I delayed my response to Jesus. I knew he was active in my life. I knew he was at work in my story but I just didn't want to acknowledge it because I knew how costly it would be for me to acknowledge it. It meant surrendering my life to him, and I didn't really want to do that. I was grateful he helped me quit smoking, but man, I still wanted to do my own thing, you know? still wanted to live my life. still wanted to party a little bit and, and have my own way, have some girlfriends, you know, all of that kind of stuff. I was frightened. I was frightened by the message of Jesus in my story. I was afraid to give up control of my life and to hand it over to him. I I was afraid to let go of control. Reality is is that some of us here today might also be afraid of that very same thing, right? Of surrender. a surrender. Maybe like Felix, you've You've heard the message of Jesus before. You're familiar with the way, right? You've heard the gospel. You know of his invitation to surrender your life to him and to follow him. But man, you're scared to do that. So you're just ignoring it, delaying a decision for a more convenient time as a result. And you know, in some ways, I I got a lot of sympathy for you. First of all, it's my story, but also, like, the message of Jesus is frightening, you know, like us preachers, we like to talk about how God is love, and he cares for you, and he accepts you, and forgives you, and all of, this, and all of that is 100% true. But make no mistake about it, the, the message of Jesus is also very frightening, and alarming, and even disturbing. I mean, just look at how Jesus himself put it, Matthew 16, to his disciples. He said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. That's scary stuff right there. If you try to hang on to your life, Jesus says, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Like, there's just no other way to put it. That's some scary stuff. Give up your own way, like as in your own will, and desires, and even plans for your life. Give up control of your life. Pick up your cross which means be prepared to suffer for me, expect to suffer with and for me, and follow me, like commit to being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and actually doing what he said, that's a frightening invitation. There's no other way around it. It's scary stuff. Heard it said this way, salvation is free, but it will cost you everything. Salvation is a free gift of God's grace. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. You can't do anything to make God love you, accept you, forgive you, except just surrender your life to Jesus, submit to the lordship of Him, confess your sins to Him, receive the free gift of salvation because of what Jesus did on the cross and empty tomb for us. It's free. You can't do anything to earn that. <laughs> but just be aware as you receive that free gift, it's going to cost you everything as a result. Your entire future is now under the control and lordship of Jesus. And and man, his plans for us are good. They're for our benefit, for our flourishing. He only wants the best for us. But I don't know about you, I'm a bit of a control freak. Like, I can't even watch TV, football without the remote. Like, if my kids or someone else has the remote, I... Like something internally inside of me just goes off. I can't handle it. I want to be in control of my life, the little things and the big things. And Jesus says, you want to follow me, you've got to give all that up. You've got to surrender your life to me. Salvation is free, but it will cost you everything. And so for some of us here today, we might be a little bit like Felix. And I wouldn't be a very um, loving pastor or friend if I tried to soften the message of Jesus and say it's just about how, you know, knowing that you're forgiven and loved. No, you need to know that it will cost you everything. It is a difficult message to receive. But if that's you, if you're like Felix and you're delaying a response to the good news of Jesus, let me encourage you from the words of Second Corinthians 6 verse 2. the Apostle Paul himself writes that today is the day of salvation. Like, don't delay, don't push it off, don't be like I was in grade 11, pushing it off for a few months. Like, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of surrender. Surrender your life to Jesus today. Trust him with your life and your future. Don't wait for a more convenient time, because there is no such thing. Today is the day of salvation. For others of us here, maybe for you, you're not, you know, making the decision for the first time to follow Jesus or to surrender your life to him. Maybe you've already done that. Maybe for you, we talk about surrender, you're thinking about a specific issue or decision in your life, something that you know that Jesus is asking you to submit to him, to surrender to him, but you're afraid to do so. You want to be in control of that thing. Maybe for you, it's something to do with your finances. You feel like God's asking you to live generously in some way, but it's hard to respond to that invitation. Maybe it has something to do with a relationship that you're in, having a hard conversation with someone, or working something out, dealing with a conflict with someone that's hard to do. Maybe it's an issue with your kids or your parents something you're struggling to submit to surrender to the lordship of jesus maybe it's something to do with your career or your schooling maybe it's a sin issue that you're struggling with you just don't want to let go of whatever it is if that's you let me encourage you with the words of jesus the invitation of jesus from matthew 6 verse 33 in his sermon on the mount where he said this seek the kingdom of god above all else and live righteously And he will give you everything you need. Like your life is not better because you're holding on to whatever it is. It's not. That Whatever it is will slowly eat away at you and and consume you and maybe even destroy you. Surrendering it to Jesus, as you surrender whatever it is to Jesus and seek to live for the kingdom of God above all else, living righteously, you can know, you can trust that God will take care of you. He'll give you everything that you need as you live in full surrender to him. So whatever it is that you're afraid to let go of, let it go. I'm not going to sing the Frozen song, but it just came into my head, so I had to share that with you. Um, (laughs) Let it go. No, let it go, and trust God with your life instead. So I wrap up. Let me leave you with a few reflection questions coming out of this story here in Acts 24. Here's the first question. Like Felix, where are you delaying a response to the invitation of Jesus in your life? Felix delayed, waited for a more convenient time. Where are you doing that? Follow-up question. What are you waiting for? Today's the day of salvation, right here, right now. surrender it to Jesus. Trust him with your life. Trust him with whatever it is that you're holding on to because your life will be better for it. Question number one. Question number two is, where is fear, perhaps, keeping you from trusting in Jesus and trusting more fully in him? What are you afraid to let go of? Question three, if the statement is true, salvation is free, but it will cost you everything, So what does following Jesus cost you lately? And what is he calling you to surrender to him right now? So I tell you what, like, Jesus is always inviting us to let go of stuff. There's always something that we're continuing to hold on to. He's like, hey, let go of that thing. There's something in all of our stories that he wants us to let go of. Big idea of this morning's message is this. Following Jesus is scary, but we don't need to be afraid. Following Jesus is scary, but we don't need to be afraid. It's scary because it's costly. It costs us everything. But we don't need to live in fear of that because he holds the whole world in his hand and he promises us that he'll provide for our every need. Let's not be like Felix and delay a response for a more convenient time, but let's respond wholeheartedly to him today, running to the Father, running to the goodness of God, um, experiencing his life, his freedom to surrender more fully to him. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for this example from Scripture of a man named Felix a man who seemed to be intrigued intrigued with the gospel, the good news of Jesus, but was frightened by it, didn't want to surrender. I pray that we wouldn't be like him today, that we wouldn't resist or delay a response to you, but that we would surrender our life fully to you, trusting you with our futures, with our relationships, with our families, with our finances, with our lives, knowing that you promised to provide for our every need as we do. God, give us the courage, the strength by your Spirit to surrender. We can't even do that on our own, in our own strength. We need you. So would you minister to our hearts this morning? Give us the courage to run to you rather than to run away from you, knowing that you're good and that your plans for us are for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We're back next week with another great message. Don't forget to check out our website, thegatheringottawa.com and tune in next week to The Gathering Ottawa's message podcast.